Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Scott, uh, one of the pastors here on the staff at Riverstone, and it's going to be my joy to be sharing this morning. Last week, we began a series that we're calling Formed by the Gospel. And the reason that we're calling it Formed by the Gospel, the reason we're even addressing this is because the gospel has power to transform our lives, not just to get us into heaven. And so oftentimes, as Chris pointed out last week, we kind of truncate the gospel, we, we shorten it, and we focus on certain points and really miss the full magnitude of the power of the gospel to really be a formative power in all of the areas of our life. We emphasize some areas and we kind of ignore other areas. It's more like getting a punch card to heaven, you know, once and done. I'm good, heard the gospel, ready to move on now, going to be going to heaven, and that's all that I need to know about the gospel. So let's talk about something else. Can we figure out the mark of the beast, you know, or something like that, and, or, or maybe not. It, but the point is that we need to spend some time allowing the gospel to fully saturate our life and to 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 grasp all of it, to understand all of the gospel. When I was growing up, it seems like that most of the time that I would hear the gospel presented, the emphasis was upon a couple of things, and you can probably fill in the gaps. First of all, it was upon sin, and then secondly, it was many times upon dying. And when the gospel would be presented, it was more or less presented in in an approach like this, when you die, are you going to go to heaven or hell? Now, as a kid, I wasn't really thinking about either of those, but if I was forced to, I would say, okay, I'll choose, I'll choose heaven. Heaven sounds much better than hell. And then the, the follow-up on that was typically, well, Buster, you've got some problems because you're a sinner. And then Bible verses would, be to be quote, would begin to be quoted, which are very powerful and very true, things like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we believe that. That's true. But then the follow-up on that is the wages of sin is death. And that death is an eternal separation from God. So I'm listening to what is being told to me is the gospel, the good news, but so far it's all pretty much bad news. And many times we color the gospel and understanding it in those kind of negative terms. Not questioning the sincerity of the people who were sharing that with me because I I realized what they were dealing with. They wanted to, first of all, be sure I didn't go to hell. And secondly, I was a hellion in those little Sunday school classes. And they were hoping that that presenting the gospel to me would make it a little easier for the Sunday school teachers. But oftentimes the gospel becomes nothing more than fire insurance. You know, a punch card, a ticket to heaven. And it's much, much more than that. When the gospel is presented by Jesus, and we have Jesus proclaim the gospel, the word gospel we, we know mean, literally means good news. And the Bible talks about in the New Testament Jesus coming along and proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news. And what he did when he showed up, he says, I've got good news for you. And the good news is not you're a sinner and you're going to hell. The good news is actually good news of something that is taking place. In Matthew 4, 23, it says this, and Jesus was going about, this is at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus was going about all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming, here it is, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And then it says he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness that was among the people. Jesus comes along and he's proclaiming good news about the kingdom of God. God's presence is moving in your midst. God's rule, his reign, God's ability to set things right. So this is good news. Something is breaking into your midst. But when we look at this, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the story. And what I'd like to do this morning is talk about where does the gospel 
really begin? Because I'm here to tell you, the gospel doesn't begin with you're a sinner and sinners go to hell. That's not where the gospel begins. It's a part of it, but that's not where it begins. It doesn't begin with sin, although sin is a reality. And it doesn't begin with hell or with death, although those are realities too. And it doesn't even begin with you and me. Sorry, but it doesn't. Where does it begin? Well, hopefully you're asking that question because I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Yep, it begins in the very beginning. The gospel, the good news begins here. In Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless. It was empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. The gospel begins, the good news begins with God. That's where it begins. It begins with God. And in the beginning, in the very beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And when he creates the heaven and the earth, the Bible tells us it's good. To really grasp what the gospel is about, to really grasp the good news, we have to understand that it all begins not with our sin, not with our failures, not with our miserable existence in life, but it begins with God, a good, powerful, generous, loving, holy, powerful, lavish creator who out of his goodness creates creation. Now, I know that when we talk about creation and and the existence of God, we're getting into some deep water, okay? Uh, It can be a very interesting conversation. And sometimes it falls into a debate between science and faith. Now, I personally, I like science. I think that science is a fantastic uh, specialty in trying to explain the nature of things and, and how things work. But we have to understand something about science. It has its limitations, And what we're delving into is something that science cannot fully measure. It can't put it in a lab and test this thing out. We're dealing with areas that are spiritual, areas that deal with faith, with unseen things that manifest into seen things. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must first of all believe that he exists and that he rewards, because he's good, he rewards those who seek him. So in the Judeo-Christian tradition, faith, we believe in the existence of God, and we believe that he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. But we also believe that he is good, that he is good and generous and loving. He is not some angry, ticked-off deity up in the heavens who's mad at us because we messed up the world, and now he's out to get even. And sometimes when you hear people talk about the gospel, that's kind of the presentation or representation of the Father that is given. That is not God. That is not where the gospel begins. Now, it doesn't mean that we dismiss science either. Uh, I'm fascinated with the areas of science, and what I have discovered, maybe something you have too, Many times when people talk about science versus faith, they give you the impression that all scientists are against faith, that they're all atheists, that they're not believers. But if you really do some research, if you really look into the facts, you discover that many of the great scientists throughout history have been Christians. They've been believers in God. 
Uh, I'll just list a few. I've got a long list here. I won't go through all of these, but Samuel Morse, who invented the Morse code, okay, very committed Christian. Arthur Eddington, who discovered that stars get their energy from nuclear fusion, a strong believer. Uh, Werner Heinsberg, leader in, in the creation of quantum mechanics, a Christian. Uh, the guy who was the father of computers, the analytical engine, was named Charles Babbage. He was a believer. Um, Blaise Pascal invented the hydraulic press, mechanical calculator, Christian. And DeRosso Volta, okay, he kind of, what did he think he invented? Uh, the electric battery, okay. J.J. Uh, Thompson discovered the electron. Florence Nightingale discovered, uh, her the discoveries added over 20 years to the normal life expectancy. 20 years by her discoveries of health, health issues. And when she attributes her, her areas of scientific and medical discoveries because she sensed a call from God, that God spoke to her and called her into that field. Um, Ernest Walton uh, is the guy who, uh, he, he said science is a way of knowing more about God. He was a Nobel Prize winner in physics when he artificially split an atom and proved that uh, E equals MC square uh, was correct. Francis Collins, he's still alive, was an atheist who turned into a Christian, became a believer. He's the national director of the Human Gemone Research uh, Institute. George Washington Carver, brilliant scientist, discovered so many things in uses of the, of the peanut itself. Um, Sir Isaac Newton invented calculus, uh, the reflecting telescope, universal laws of gravitation, laws of motion. And when I, when I was growing up, I thought he was the guy who invented the Fig Newton, which is a very good discovery. <laughs> Well, I'm very grateful for, obviously sometimes. Um, but we have to understand that science and all of its brilliance has its limitations. And something is interesting about science, many times it's presented as rock solid, immutable, unchangeable. And the fact is that science changes as things get discovered. Have you, have you noticed that? When, when I was growing up, Pluto was a planet. And if you took a test and you left Pluto off, you got a bad grade. And then they came along and said, no, you were right all along. You should have been teaching the class because Pluto is not a planet. But now maybe it is. I'm not sure. I get confused. They keep changing on this. Science has told us that coffee is good for you. Amen. And then they came along and said, no, no, caffeine is bad for you. Knock it off. No, 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 no. More scientists come along and say, no, caffeine is good for you. And I noticed this morning that a lot of you agree that it is. Yes, raise those cups up. You've got them right now. Um, chocolate, bad for you, good for you. It depends on what scientists you listen to. Eggs. I grew up eating eggs, and then was told eggs are bad for you. Now somebody comes and looks, no, they're, they're good for you. Scientists used to believe that the world was flat and that the world of the earth is the center of the universe. And everything revolved around us. Um, and some people still kind of act like everything revolves around them. But science slowly understood that they were wrong on these things, and they changed their views. There may be still some flat earth people around. I think there's a Netflix special, and they're the people who believe that coffee is bad for you, by the way. <laughs> but when it comes to creation, if you take the time to really look at the science and the beauty of creation both on a cosmic level and a microscopic level. If you look at the stars, the planets, the galaxies, if you look at the body, you look at the tree, anything that you do, you begin to marvel at the genius in created things. You see God's fingerprints all over created matter. 
One of my favorite books is, is one that we have in the bookstore. It's called More Than Meets the Eye. It's written by a Christian physicist and medical uh, doctor. And he looks at both of those dimensions. And I read that book every year. I just read it again. I'm just amazed at how God created everything that he created. The detail, the intelligent design behind all of it are absolutely amazing. For me to believe that this all came from just an explosion where some mixed up particles in the midst of nothingness about space came together just the right way and blew up, you know, the big boom and spit out stars and planets and galaxies and solar systems and planets like ours that are perfectly placed and perfectly balanced in the solar system with the exact right amount of tilt at the axis that have livable climate so we can live and sustain both plants and animals. To me, that requires more faith than I have. To believe that just the boom and everything came into existence and that out of some cesspool of microbes we have the complexity of your human body. Can you really begin to look at the complexity of your human body and go, no, I don't have enough faith to believe that came out of some cesspool. There's brilliance behind it all. It's, it's to believe that is like saying that if you blow up a parts factory, when all the parts fall back to earth, they fall together and assemble a perfectly fully functional, completely fueled and staff, 747 ready to roll. And I don't, you can blow up factories from now to infinity and beyond, and I don't think that's going to happen. There is intelligence and brilliance and benevolence behind creation. It's God. When we honestly look at science and the physics of creation, we see God's fingerprints. And the more that we discover, the more it amazes us, the more curious we become. One of my favorite pictures, and I apologize in advance for not having this way this morning, one of my favorite pictures comes from the Hubble Space uh, Satellite. It's still orbiting at about 340 miles. They fixed it. It was broken for a while, and they fixed it, so I'm, I was glad to hear that. But there was a particular star field that we had been watching for many, many years, and we said we would really like to get a, a telescope to be able to study this star field and try to figure out just exactly how many stars are in this distant, very far distant star field, millions of light years away. And so we took the Hubble telescope, and we pointed it at the star field, and guess what we discovered? They weren't stars. They were galaxies. They were galaxies, thousands and thousands of galaxies, each one with millions of stars within them. I love that picture because you blow it up and you begin to see the galaxies like our Milky Way all tilted in different directions. And we used to think they're stars. We're looking up and we're seeing, oh, there are stars. No, 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 no. Those are galaxies. And every time we think we've discovered the, the furthest out thing, the farthest out thing that we, we can possibly see, we find out there's something beyond it. The Milky Way, our home itself, has 100 billion stars in it. Count them, 100 billion. Andromeda Galaxy has 1 trillion stars in it. Most galaxies only average about 100 million. The deep-filled images of Hubble telescope suggest that that now suggest that there are 10 times more galaxies in the universe than scientists previously thought. They, they come up with a number of around 2 trillion galaxies. So if you're good at math, I've, I've got a little test for you. And this, this was the measurement, by the way, made in uh, October of 2016. So now it may be even more. Somebody do the math for me. Two trillion galaxies take the average of 100 million stars each, give or take a few million. What does that come to? How many stars? And these are light years apart. We, we serve a really, really, really big God. And it didn't come from just a boom of a few particles floating together and they mixed up at just the right formula to boom, create all of this. God may have, there may have been a big boom when God said, let there be, boom. I, can, I wasn't there to hear it, nor were you, but I can imagine that it was a pretty strong creative boom that went on when God says, let there be, boom. and there is. Over 3,500 years ago, David wrote this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. 
their words to the ends of the world. Our God is amazing. And what he has built and created in the, in the cosmic skies is really nothing compared to the human body. The human body is absolutely fascinating. If you just look at the human brain, it'll blow your mind. There you go. Only one person caught that joke. It was a, that was a dead joke. I'll just go ahead and admit it there. But the human body is absolutely amazing. The brain, just take the brain for a second. Uh, your brain has 86 trillion brain cells in it called neurons. 86 billion is what I said. They say that an infant, when an infant is born, they have 100 billion brain cells. So we lose a few along the way. Maybe it's from the coffee or the TV or the iPhone, but we lose a few billion along the way. The brain makes thousands of basic computations and operations per second. And many of those, we're not, we're not even thinking about it. Nobody in here is saying, breathe, 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 heart beat, 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 beat. Kidneys work. Kidneys, well, well, no, don't work right now. Wait. You know, no, we're not telling our body to operate like that yet. The brain created by God has all of these computations and, and, and things that are taking place second after second. Our body is made up of many different systems, nervous system, the digestive system, the respiratory system, all these different systems. Each system is made up of organs. Each organ is made up of different tissues, and those tissues are made up of cells in your body. Your body has 37.2 trillion cells in it. And each of those cells inside of your body are made up of atoms. Your body has, now catch this number, seven octillion. I didn't know what an octillion was, so I had to look it up. That's a seven with 27 zeros behind it. That's how many atoms your body has within it. And many of these atoms are popping in and out of existence even as we sit here right now. But it doesn't stop there with all of those trillions of atoms. Each one of those atoms is made up of subatomic particles, neurons and, and, and protons. And it doesn't stop there. Those are made up of something called quarks. And every time scientists think, we think that we found the very smallest thing possible, they look in their telescopes and it's like some little critter kind of just pokes around behind a proton and goes, oh yeah, how about me? And they discover there's more. They ask themselves, just how small does it go? You know, not just in science fiction movies, you know. They just wonder, how small does it go? It seems to sometimes expand in both dimensions, both on a microscopic level and a cosmic level, and it just continues to go. And every time we think we've discovered the furthest in either extreme, we find out there's more. There is more. Our God is absolutely amazing. King David would write about this with a body, and this was, again, 3,500 years ago. He says, for you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And he didn't have even the advantage of, of science explaining all of these mysteries to us that we have today. We should look at our bodies and go, oh, God, wow, you are incredible. Genesis 1 tells us that each time God created something, he said, that's good. That's good. This is good. He gave his nod of approval, his pleasure, his delight on each thing that is created. God had a blast, a good time creating. He was delighted over his creation. Our God is an amazing creator, 
and his creation is good. But then he comes along and he creates the crown jewel of creation, man and woman. Genesis 1, 26. This is God. This is the Trinity having a conversation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in absolute fellowship and harmony together. They say, let us make man in our image. Did you ever see that and go, what do you mean, let us make man in our image? This is the Trinity talking. Let us make God, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing, I used to say, and every creepy thing that creeps upon the earth. All of it. God says, we're going to put man here in our image. Mankind will exist in in our likeness and he will have rule and dominion over that. Now, what does it mean in God's image? Well, God has a mind. We have a mind. We can think. We can process. God has emotions. He's an emotional being. That's where our emotions came from. God gave us the ability to feel emotions, to enjoy them, to use them. Volition is will, the ability to decide and to choose. We are given a soul with a spiritual capacity. We are an eternal spiritual being created at one point and then living eternally with the ability to commune and relate to God, a spiritual capacity, the crown jewel of his creation. But he also gives us in his likeness and image the ability to rule our little small domains. God rules everything. He is, he is supreme over everything, but he gives each one of us our little kingdom. And he says, rule in this kingdom. And what of what he gives us the responsibility of being stewards of is the world. Long before the green movement came along, I believe that God gave us the responsibility to care for the world. It's a part of stewardship. It's taking care, tending the garden that God has given us. And we're responsible for that, to care for that. And we answer to God for how we do it. Genesis 2 comes along and it breaks down in further detail the creation of the garden and the creation of mankind. The Lord says that, the Bible says that every tree uh, that is pleasing in, in, in sight is good for food and he creates all the trees and all the fruit. He creates rivers that flow and bring water into the garden. I, I can only imagine with my imagination that those are crystal clear flowing streams full of trout. Yes, I thought I'd get an amen out of that. Beautiful. I mean, try to, just try to imagine the Garden of Eden for a moment. Pristine, clear, unpolluted, pure, and beautiful. He even says that it was rich with jewels and gold and other things. And after God has created that, he creates Adam. But then there's something interesting here. Something absolutely amazing. Each time God had created something in creation, he says, this is good. This is good. Woo, look, this is good. And he's, he's delighted over it, but he creates Adam, and he speaks something that had never been heard before. And I imagine the angels just froze when they began to hear him speak this. He creates Adam, and he says, mm, this is not good. That, And I imagine they just froze. What? I mean, look at Adam. I mean, this dude is ripped. I mean, this is the, the, the male specimen. He's great. What do you mean? Look at his brain, his body, and everything. He's perfect. What are you talking about? It's not good. But he completes the sentence, and he goes, it's not good that he's alone. I created mankind for relationship, for fellowship. And he goes through then the exercise of creating woman for man. It's not God coming along and saying, oops, I forgot something. No, no, no. It's not an afterthought. I believe that he is stating an important fact for mankind. 
that we were created for relationship. We were not designed to be lone rangers. We were not designed to be alone. Now, we oftentimes use this scripture, and I have, in doing weddings, and it's very fitting. It's very fitting in doing weddings, but it, it goes way beyond just weddings because it's not God's call that everyone is going to be married. Some people are going to be single, and it doesn't mean that there are less people whatsoever, and it doesn't mean that this verse doesn't apply to them, for God created us all for relationship to connect with others, but ultimately to connect with God to have fellowship with God. One of the most beautiful scriptures in this whole narrative is when it describes the fact that God at the end of the day in the cool of the evening would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. My favorite time of the day, the evening. And they would take a stroll together and they would fellowship together. They would commune together. What we're seeing here is God's original intention for man and woman. This is where the gospel begins. A good God a powerful, creative God, a God who creates creation is beautiful and pristine and marvelous, a God who creates Adam and Eve, man and woman, and is beautiful. And it's, these are God's kids, and it's absolutely wonderful. It's beautiful. The gospel begins with this God, with this creation, and with mankind being born into, created into this relationship. But we are not the center of the gospel. Nor is our sin, nor is our failure the center of the story. God is the center of the story. This God, good, creative, powerful God. What is being displayed in the gospel and in creation is the glory of God. God's character, God's goodness, his generosity, his purity, his love. And God's glory is greater than anything else. And out of his glory, he creates us to, in his image to share, to reflect his glory, to let it shine through us. And that is what is at the center of the gospel. And the reason that this is important is because this is what God is going to restore in our day. This is what God is going to redeem. This, he goes back to restoring to the original Intention And our minds can, can hardly even grasp all of this. I mean, how beautiful and how pristine the Garden of Eden must have been. How wonderful it was for Adam and Eve. No sin, no shame, no guilt, no wounds, no anxiety, no COVID. <laughs> Imagine joy, freedom. I mean, the bumper sticker, life is good, is appropriate in the Garden of Eden. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know what's happening right now. We're going, wait, wait, just one minute. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God is good, if creation is good, if man and woman created and it was good, how do you explain the mess that we're in today? How do you explain the evil? How do you express, express the suffering? How do you explain the, the sickness and all the evil that is in the world today? The good news is that I don't have to. Pastor Chris is going to address that next week. <laughs> A little tease for next week. I'm staying true to my assignment. I'm laying the foundation of the gospel. And the gospel doesn't begin there. The gospel begins here. We have to get fully imprinted in our heart and our mind the goodness of God the goodness of his creation, what he is restoring us 
to, what he is bringing us back in. And there's something in our hearts that awakens and knows this is true. There's something that is stirred. We long for this. And the very reason that evil and suffering and pain feels out of place the re even reason that it, it bothers us is because there's something inside of us that knows it robs us from God's original intention. That it is a thief, that death is a thief. That there is a murderer, something, some power that kills, steals, and destroys God's original intention. That longing of our heart for Eden is always there. J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, was also a believer. And he has this quote. I'll read it a couple times because I don't have a slide for this. He says, we all long for Eden. And we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature is still soaked with a sense of exile. Wow. We all long for Eden. We do. Sometimes we get glimpses of it in the beauty of the world around us. And it stirs up a homesickness, a longing, an ache. We know that we're exiled from that which we were created for, and it haunts us. The loss haunts us. It causes our soul to ache. It is evidence that our souls know this is not the way it should be. We've been robbed. We've been robbed. Yet, in our life, we are able to, even today, get glimpses of Eden. Every time we do, something leaps within our heart and we long for it. An incredible sunrise is a kiss from God. A gurgling, clear mountain stream, particularly with trout in it, it just does something to our heart when we see it. We long for the refreshment in our soul that, that that stream gives us a picture of. A majestic elk strolling through a river. I got a picture of one just recently, amazed at the grace of the, and the ease of his movements. A mighty mountain range opens and expands our soul. I, I know that in traveling before, one of my favorite places to travel is out west. And over every hill and around every corner, you come across these beautiful panoramic views, these beautiful expanses. Sometimes you can see for 100 miles or more to the next mountain range and something explodes in your soul when you see it and you just go, wow, would you look at that? And sometimes you're by yourself and you just go, wow, would you look at that? I had some friends recently that were going uh, up the Blue Ridge Parkway and they traveled all 500 something miles of the Blue Ridge Parkway and, he, and my friend said that every time they would go around these curves riding along a ridge and seeing these beautiful pictures, uh, these beautiful scenes, he said they remembered scripture where the angels were declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he said they, they just started saying that, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We look at the face of a child, so beautiful, so innocent. A sunset on the ocean demonstrates the, the inexhaustible vastness of that ocean, and we long for the God who created it. David would say, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd, and he cares for me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And the reason he could say that was because of his understanding that Yahweh 
is the God who says, I am that I am, inexhaustible, no beginning, no end, no need. Everything flows from him, and it continually flows from him. And David could say, because God is Yahweh, because he is self-sustaining, always flowing, generous and good, he's everything that I need. I want for nothing else he will provide for me. A clear mountain, a clear sky up in the mountains, millions of stars, or maybe they're galaxies. We know that we're made for more. For the one who spoke it all into existence and holds it all into place, we desire to be connected to him, don't we? We ache for it. Next time you get that ache, that longing, understand what you're aching and longing for. It's that homesickness for Eden. The God who loves you created you for that, desires that for you. The gospel begins with the goodness of God and his desire to fill our hearts and fill our souls, fill our lives with himself. That longing, that pain that we feel, that, that hole that we sense inside of us can only be filled by him. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon penned this. He says, God has set in the human heart eternity. God has set eternity in our hearts. And every human soul is a God-given awareness that there is something more than this transient world we live in. God has placed an internal longing, a sense of eternity within us, a divinely planted awareness that our soul was created for more, that our soul lives forever, and that our soul is not sustained by the things that quickly pass in this world. We were created for more, for better. We were created for him. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher and mathematician, scientist, and everything else, in the 17th century, he penned this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And the gospel is that God desires to fill us. He desires to bring us into that relationship. When Jesus came and he preached the gospel of the kingdom, he was announcing Look, good news, God is coming to rescue your heart. God is coming to restore this within you, and it is indeed good news. We can begin to practice, um, let's just call it practicing Eden, practicing heaven, by focusing and setting God in these things upon our mind. Paul would write this in Philippians. He says, finally, and since it says finally, I'll let this be the end of my message. How about that? I'll stay true to it. Um, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We were created for Eden. We were created for God. Let's pray together. Um, hopefully this morning... If anything else, we've laid a little bit of a foundation of the gospel and what the gospel is about. We'll deal with the other issues, but I wanted us to have a clear understanding of where it starts. We like to take a few moments each week and just pause and, and, and look back over our past week uh, before we come to the communion table. So I want to give you an opportunity.